Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Now playing on demand is The Session, starring Academy Award nominee Helen Hunt. You can also see all of the Oscar-nominated live action and animated shorts. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The art house is now in your house. Videology in Brooklyn, New York. This is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit Live. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. This week on the show, we're shaking things up a bit with our first ever, and should this go horribly horribly wrong, as it already has, potentially last ever live episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. Our non-listener's choice, listener's choice review is the new Netflix series House of Cards, and we'll also have a Q&A, we hope, with Craig Zobel, the director of Compliance. Now, instead of cue shots, in which we'd normally offer a list of themed streaming and VOD picks, we thought for the live show we'd have more of a discussion about a topic related to House of Cards. Now, she thinks, by skipping cue shots, she's going to stop me from doing my Kevin Spacey with a southern accent impression. But little does she know, I've already done it. Uh, you know, I, I can hear you. We're both already talking to the audience. There's no fourth wall Money to break. is the McMansion in Sarasota that starts falling apart in ten years. Power is the old stone building that stands for centuries, and I cannot respect someone who doesn't see the difference. Uh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Wait, 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 ready, ready, ready? Hold on. If you haven't seen the show, this is going to make any sense. Wait, ready? Carry on. That was nice. That was nice. Right? Come on. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be talking about TV on streaming sites and how our consumption of episodic shows is changing. Um, But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our very generous sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD, give you a rundown of a few other notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, you've got all of our picks this week. What's new on VOD? Our first pick is my favorite movie of last year, Holy Motors. Directed by the man of a thousand last name pronunciations and first name pronunciation, Leo. What do we think? Audience, what? How do you pronounce his name? Carrick. Leo Carrix? I've heard Leo Carra. Mm. I've heard Leos Carrix. Carrix. I think Carrix sounds good. You say Carrix, I say Carra. Let's, let's call the whole thing off. Uh, and it stars the unstoppable Denny Levant. Allison, I know we've talked about the movie on the podcast before, but... Just to recap, it's a really amazing movie. It's kind of this simultaneously melancholic elegy to the end of film, and at the same time, it's sort of a jubilant celebration of the beginning, maybe a new future of movies. Levant stars in 11 different roles, but primarily as Oscar, appropriate given the timing of this, uh, this podcast. He travels around Paris. He plays all these different roles. He plays a troll. Right? He's a dying man. He's a homeless woman at one point. He plays a motion capture performer. He has all these different roles for reasons that are left to the audience to determine. Is he dead? Is he sleeping? Is this a dream? Is it one big metaphor for acting? Does it, does it really matter? It doesn't matter. All that matters is the, music, the movie is just beautiful. It's brilliant. It's exciting. And it has one hell of an accordion hoedown in the middle of it. So that is Holy Motors. Very highly recommended. How many people here have seen Holy Motors so far? Let's get a round of applause if you've seen Holy Motors. All right, not bad, not bad. Well, the good news, if you did not applaud, is that it will be available on VOD starting on February 26th. We have two more picks for you, uh, all available on February 26th. 
First, for all the writers, doctors, nuclear physicists, and theoretical philosophers out there, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master will satisfy your urge for musing about the nature of men and animals and also for strange potions made out of photodevelopment chemicals and coconut milk. Uh, that was my second favorite movie of 2012, Allison. Was it on your list? It was definitely remember. on my list. Okay, yeah. well, that is a, that's a good week for VOD right there. Yeah, really. Uh, if you, at least if you have my taste in movies. And last... Um, this is the first live-action movie from the directors of Persepolis. Do we have any Persepolis fans in the audience? Okay, well, they, the uh, directors, Vincent Parnot and Marjan Satrapi, they have a, a live-action film, their first live-action film, called Chicken with Plums. Did anybody see this movie yet? Well, good news. It's available on VOD. So it's, uh, it's about an Iranian violinist who decides that uh, after his instrument breaks, his beloved violin breaks, that he doesn't want to live anymore. Spoiler alert. So um, we follow sort of his final days as he's laying there dying and also sort of contemplating uh, why he's gotten to this point and what this violin you know, symbolizes, what it means to him. Uh, it's a beautiful movie. They bring that sort of very strong graphic influence from Persepolis to the movie. And it has Matthew Almerich, who you probably know uh, from a lot of movies, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly and the villain in Quantum of Solace. I'm sure that's the one he wants to be remembered yeah, by, too. Yeah, he's probably proudest of that one, yeah. Fabulous in this movie as the, as the violinist. So that's called Chicken with Plums, also available on February 26th. So that's going to do it for opening break, but stay tuned. When SVU Live returns, we're going to talk about how Netflix and the world of online streaming is changing the way people make and watch television. And, get ready for this, guys, we're going to do the conversation in 13 parts, but... <laughs> We're going to release the whole thing all at once so you can just listen to it in one big binge. So stay tuned. Well, now it's time for cue shots that are not cue shots this week. Instead, we are talking about House of Cards and about this shift in TV on streaming. How many of you guys have seen at least some of House of Cards? Yeah. How many of you guys finished House of Cards? That's like a, that's pretty good. I mean, I, I feel like 13 hours. It hasn't been out for a full month yet. That's uh, some dedication. I only finished it last night, so... Yeah, I finished it the night before. So, yeah. So, so we're you cramming, guys, cramming. Yeah, it felt a little bit like that, but yeah. yes. So you know, House of Cards is actually the second of Netflix's original series. The first was Lily Hammer, which we actually talked about back on Film Spotting SVU episode three in our early days. Yeah, Lily Hammer. Woo! <laughs> yeah, this one a little more prominent. Um, you know, and Netflix has more coming out. They have Hemlock Grove, which is a supernatural drama from Eli Roth um, that's coming out in April. The new season of The Resurrected Arrested Development is coming out in May. And later in the year, they have Orange is the New Black, which is a woman in prison dramedy from Genji Cohen, who created Weeds. Uh, what's interesting? Awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what's interesting about these shows, beyond the fact that they're TV shows that have no traditional TV network attached to them, this is the fa- and, and something that Hulu and Crackle and Amazon now are they're all getting into this game is the fact that, uh, like Lilyhammer and House of Cards, they're currently slated to go live the entire season at once. And uh, this is meant to deal with how people are watching TV these days. Instead of everyone just watching live TV, you've got DVRs, you've got uh, streaming, you've got DVD sets. It's much more common for people to watch everything at once. 
But uh, there's something to this that I think also, as much as it made sense to me in theory, uh, when this actually happened, I had a question. And this is my question for you, Matt. Yes. How did you know when to talk about which episodes? When you don't have things coming out week by week, when do you know to be like, hey, what about that thing that happened in episode 10? Oh, yeah, I'm going to spoil it right now. Uh, I guess I don't know, but uh, my thing would be that I don't really care all that much. I don't know if people really do care. Uh, I, I understand why, let's say, a journalist, someone who's got to cover TV and write about TV, why they would certainly care. Because, yeah, how do you write about it? Um, you know, there's this whole industry that's built around writing recaps, weekly reviews. And how do you do that for House of Cards? It's basically impossible. But I, my question is, do, does... And look, we have people to ask it to. Does the audience care about that? Because I think of myself in terms of TV as more of just a casual viewer. Uh, I watch a lot of movies. I don't really have a time to watch a lot of TV. So for me, that whole world of recapping and reviewing, that kind of goes over my head. So for me, I loved having all 13 episodes to watch, not all at once, but in three or four or five sittings. So does the audience care? That's what I want to know. Does the audience mind that they don't have a... The water cooler effect? I don't know that they do. Do you think they do? Well, I felt like on Twitter, which is, you know, where TV, the conversation for TV has kind of moved a lot of the time, even during when episodes are airing, you have people going like blow by blows of, of what happens. I did feel like there was some confusion about being like, it came out, you know, and then when do you know what to talk about next? I felt like the conversation was diffused a bit in that way. I, I mean, like, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think that you didn't have the dissection of episode per episode that you would normally have for a TV show. Well, let's, let's ask the, by round of applause. Was there people, people who were watching the show, were you upset that you couldn't engage with people on Twitter or read things like that? Was that affecting your, your listening? No, everyone's shaking their head. You, this is a podcast, so no one can see. But everyone, I have a lot of... <laughs> Visible shaking, no. So, so clearly, I'm right, and Allison is incorrect, and we have settled the matter for once and for all. Let's next question, Allison. All right. Well, my next question. For yes. You, <laughs> that since was that easy. was decided. Yeah, um, this is awesome. Let's always have people here to show uh, I'm right. Um, is that you know one of the things that was always talked about, especially with these Netflix shows, yeah. is that there may be somewhere between TV and movies. That this is a lot of like Eli Roth keeps talking about. Like it's almost Grove, a new art form. It's you like mean? a thirteen-hour movie. It's okay. like he's thought about that more. And you know, I, I think when you look at something like say Alias, which came out a few years ago, if you watch that on streaming now, you're, you're very aware of the fact that it kind of ends with cliffhangers all the time. You know, it's always like, <gasps> and then like the next episode starts, and she's like, ah. <sighs> Like, so, uh, <laughs> can, wait, can I pause for one second here and say something? The one thing I absolutely hate about watching like this new model, yeah, autoplay. Oh yeah, I hate auto because what the, the credits start rolling. I need a moment to talk with my wife, maybe use the restroom, maybe get a beverage, and before and the, your controller. I'm watching on my PlayStation, so the controller is asleep. I have to wake up. It's like a race against time. Can I wake up the controller quick enough to turn off the autoplay before the next episode starts? I have a very small life, Allison, but that is a huge deal to me. I'm sorry. That's all right. It sounds like it's really causing you some pain. Uh, <sighs> but, you know, I think that yes. you, in seeing something like House of Cards, there's much less of a sense that, like, each episode is very self-contained. They kind of blur into each other. There, you know, there, there's a bit more yes. of that continuity and less sense that you have to end with, like, tune in next episode for there, this. Well, is that a strength or a weakness, though? I felt this, too. I know exactly what you're saying. There weren't a lot of great, like, grab-ya cliffhangers. Episodes didn't end with, oh, my God, I gotta start 
thank God there's an autoplay. I can't move. I have to watch the next episode immediately. I felt like, the, you know, shows that I have binge watched, shows like The Wire, you know, or even Alias. I binge watched parts of Alias for sure. Uh, you would you would be desperate to watch that next episode. You couldn't wait. You were a junkie. And in this show, I didn't all. There was two instances I can think of where I was like, oh, I want to watch the next one right now. So if their goal, though, is to keep us watching, isn't that a bad thing? I don't know. I feel like it definitely didn't have, and maybe it's specific to this title in particular, but it didn't have that sense of urgency. But it, I think it also, it's providing an opportunity for like a real shift in, in the idea of how episodic TV is made. Like Arrested Development, uh, when they were ta- the cast was talking about it at, the, at TCA this year, they were saying that each episode is going to be basically starting back from the same point, but about a different cast member. So it's like, you know, that's like a completely different way to think about a season. It's not your traditional, like, you know, episodes unfolding in order. And I think that the potential for that to have something that's just really radically different in terms of structure. I mean, like, theoretically, I don't think this is going to happen, but theoretically you could have, like, a five-minute episode and then a 45-minute episode. Because if you're not airing within TV blocks, then, like, why do you need to follow regular lengths, you know? I think that's actually really exciting. And uh, not to get into our House of Cards review early, but I actually feel like what you're talking about might have made the show a little bit better. It felt, to me, a little bit like it was trying too hard to be a TV show, you know? 13 episodes like a show on cable and 50, 48 to 52-minute episodes. And I kind of felt like when you're doing something for Netflix, why don't you do something a little bit more adventurous? Uh, maybe make it a, you know... Five episodes, maybe eight episodes. I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I felt like House of Cards didn't need 13 episodes. People can't. <laughs> I'm whispering very loudly, and I'm realizing that no one can hear me at the back of the room, so I apologize for that. No. Uh, in, in terms of my big concern, uh, I don't know if people heard about this. There was a story, I think it was in Slate, about how Netflix is making their programming and how they dis- decided to make House of Cards. I don't know if you guys heard about this. It involves their data. I have one... I have one now. I want to say I have one guy nodding positively, but again, no one can see that. So basically, Netflix, every time you use your Netflix account, Netflix is, not to alarm you, Netflix is watching you. Netflix is keeping track of every time you stop and start and what you watch and how long you watch it. Like last night when I watched all of Dirty Work six times in a row, Netflix <laughs> noticed that. Netflix noticed that. And I noticed it too, and it felt weird, but it felt good at the same time. So every time that you're watching something, Netflix is watching you, and they're using that information to instruct their... How's it going, Terry? <laughs> Good. Okay. So they're using that to sort of determine what they make. So in terms of their data, they were like, well, people really seem to like Kevin Spacey movies, and they really seem to love political thrillers. So let's make a political thriller starring Kevin Spacey. And that's how we got House... That's literally how they decided to make House of Cards. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong in a sense. I get it. You know, you're... you're Serving your users. Your users like Kevin Spacey. Give them Kevin Spacey. I like Kevin Spacey, sure. Uh, They like political thrillers, absolutely. But to me, that's kind of concerning when you're going, well, the only things we're going to make are things that are kind of like things that already exist. And if that becomes like a dominant model of making art, that's kind of scary, right? Because then we'll never get anything original because it's only going to be things that are based on other things. Yeah, but I, I mean, that's nothing new, right? Like market testing things has been, especially when you're making something expensive, that's been the case always for movies. And I think the 
the good part about this is that normally you're like, well, when a movie's market tested, it, you know, becomes like worse, right? That like it goes to the lowest common denominator. They're like, add more jokes where people fall over or get hit in the face by pies or whatever the people want. So I think the fact that they looked at their data and they're like, do you know what? Let's do a really dense 13-hour political drama directed partially by David Fincher. That is great. If that is what the people want, I think that that's you know, a kind of phenomenal thing to come out of data. So I think that, you know, there are definitely worse things uh, unless we suddenly, the next Netflix series is like, I don't know, all, it's like a reality show, but, you know, maybe drunker. That's, there's, I'm sure there's an audience for that as well. So Keep talking, know, for, I'm listening. For now, I'm pretty happy with, with at least the, the direction these early shows have been going. All right, is there anything else, any last comments we want to make before we wrap it up in this segment? Let's move on to House of Cards. President-elect Garrett Walker. Do I like him? No. Do I believe in him? That's beside the point. Any politician that gets 70 million votes has tapped into something larger than himself, larger than even me, as much as I hate to admit it. Look at that winning smile, those trusting eyes. I latched onto him early on and made myself vital. After 22 years in Congress, I can smell which way the wind is blowing. Oh, Jim Matthews, his right honorable vice president, former governor of Pennsylvania. He did his duty in delivering the Keystone State, bless his heart, and now they're about to put him out to pasture. But he looks happy enough, doesn't he? For some, it's simply the size of a chair. <laughs> Linda Vasquez, Walker's chief of staff. I got her hired. She's a woman, check, and a Latina, check. But more importantly than that, she's as tough as a $2 stick. Check, check, check. When it comes to the White House, you not only need the keys in your back pocket, you need the gatekeeper. As for me, I'm just the lowly House majority whip. I keep things moving in a Congress choked by pettiness and lassitude. My job is to clear the pipes and keep the sludge moving. But I won't have to be a plumber much longer. I've done my time. I've backed the right man. Give and take. Welcome to Washington. Welcome back to Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit Live. I'm Matt Singer with Allison Wilmore. Allison, the title of House of Cards comes from the 1990 BBC miniseries that inspired it and the novel of the Michael Dobbs novel that inspired that. Nonetheless, I can't think of a more perfect name for Netflix's first really serious entree into the world of original programming. What they're attempting to do here is just as impressive and just as precarious as a structure built entirely out of aces, kings, queens, and jacks. With House of Cards, and with this whole programming strategy, Netflix might create something that dazzles millions of people, or the whole thing might come tumbling down in a big hurry. Now, the series transposes the original story from London to Washington, D.C., where the character formerly known as Francis Urquhart... Did I get that right, Stuart? He's nodding. That's, I'm sure that's how they all said it on the show, too. The chief whip of the conservative party has been transformed into Francis Underwood, House Majority Whip of the Democratic Party. And in the premiere episode, the first of two, directed by The Social Network and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoos, David Fincher, Underwood is passed over for a position in the president's administration. A president, Allison, he helped get elected, no less. And from that moment on... His every waking moment is dedicated to an elaborate revenge scheme that involves his wife, Claire, who runs a nonprofit organization dedicated to clean water, Zoe Barnes, the ambitious reporter from the fictional Washington Herald, and the very much based, in fact, I'm sure, slugline.com, 
and Congressman Peter Russo, whose drug and alcohol addictions are used as blackmail material by Underwood. Now, Allison, Netflix's future doesn't literally rest on this house of cards, but they've got a lot riding on it nonetheless. Apparently, the budget was something like $100 million. Did I have that right? Yes. So they spent $100 million on this series. It was not cheap. And they're hoping to create something to build their brand around, a show so good that people are forced to sign up for Netflix just to watch it, the way people signed up for HBO to watch The Sopranos or The Game of Thrones or something like that. So, Allison, my question, did they succeed? Well, I think that one of the things when you're watching the show that is obvious is just how expensive, you know, how quality it is. It, I think it kind of beyond how you might think of the show in general. It's just made with amazing actors, with this writer who's a, you know, an award-winning playwright, with David Fincher and a lot of other very well-respected directors. I think that they certainly spared Like Joel no... Schumacher? Oh, yes, like Joel Schumacher, mm-hmm. of course. Yes. That Why are you laughing? <laughs> He's a very respected director. It was an interesting surprise right there in the middle. Like, <laughs> it was. You know, James Foley and I wonder if Joel David Schumacher. Fincher directed uh, Joel Schumacher. <laughs> But I think there's a real, like, there's a sense that they spared no expense, Mm. you know. And I think that as much as, uh, there are things I really like about the series, and there are things that I think uh, probably could have been tightened up a bit, it is, it stands up there in terms of quality with HBO, which I think is what they, they set out to do, to make a series that looked... Like it, you know, came from the same place, basically. You're saying entertainment quality or production quality? Production quality, I would say form, foremost. But I, yes. I mean, I do think okay. that I can agree with HBO that. has also had shows that you, you know, feel like they could have been tightened up a little bit more too. So I think so. It's that, on par with a so-so HBO show. Yes, I would say that. Fair enough. Uh, let's see. Let's hear what the audience thinks. Did, did this show? Is this show good enough? Let's say you didn't own Netflix, you didn't sign up for Netflix, but you did just to see this show. Would you be satisfied so far by a round of applause with what you've seen? Or- there's also, again, they can't see this, but there's one guy who's just like, no way. I saw, I saw you, sir, shaking your head. You hear that, Netflix? That guy, he's really upset. Uh, okay, well, that was, that was pretty good. And let's, say you, let's just say as a viewer who just ha- maybe ha- already has Netflix, are you satisfied with the experience so far? Okay, that's just about every. That's there's just some, about there's everybody. some woos in there. I heard one woo. Yeah, there's one audible woo. So that's that's not bad. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, I would say it's. I overall, I would say, and I just finished the whole series last night. I'd say it's it's pretty good. It's entertaining. Uh, it is very. It does look good. It's expensive looking. It looks expensive. Uh, it's sharp. It's a. It's nicely shot. Nicely directed. Even by Joel Schumacher. I'll give him credit. He did a good job. All the directors did a good job. The acting, the the cast is great. And most of the acting, I think, is very, very good. I think, as I sort of alluded to earlier, my big thing was I don't know that it really needed to be 13 episodes. I felt like right around episode 7, 8, it was doing one of these. It was like, hey, let's send Kevin Spacey's character to his alma mater for an episode to reveal the dark background that is kind of – Pretty underwhelming and easily predicted. I yeah. felt like that was really just like, well, we have to have 13 episodes. How do we stretch this out? It, I, there was a couple episodes right in that middle portion where I was like, let's, let's, let's see what's happening here. Uh, but I, I'd say it's pretty good. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, after it started off a little slow for me, but it did feel... One of the things I thought was interesting about it was that it felt like 
it felt like the beginning of a movie as opposed to seeing a traditional pilot watching that first episode. I was like, this is not, this is not like, here's all the characters and let us like show you what a typical episode will be about. You know, it didn't have that sense of like, we've got all this stuff to get out there. And I mean, that was interesting, even though it didn't really give me a sense of urgency to keep watching, at least in those first episodes. But I thought like between three episode three and like, the, the one where he goes to the school. Like, there, there was some really great stuff in there. Dealing with the teachers' union, I thought that that was, like, smart. I love the fact that this was a political drama that didn't just generalize about politics. You know, it actually delved, with, delved into some actual issues that someone might have uh, in office. That's a good point. Yeah, I agree with that. Did you feel like you felt any of David Fincher's influence? Did you feel like, oh, I'm watching a David Fincher TV show? I mean, yeah, in those first two episodes, I feel like they there was a bit of the look of social network in those. There was like this real like cool um like they're beautifully shot those first two episodes, especially, and I think there's this kind of cool like i I don't know like a slick surface to it almost, and i uh, I think that the the show manages to make. DC look both like very sumptuous and terrible at the same time. You know, like Zoe's apartment is like a fantastically horrible apartment. Uh, and I was like, you know, it didn't have to be that bad. You could have like made your bed. It would have been better. But I, I think that it does a good job of like showing that, like the highs and lows of that really well. The one thing that I sort of felt, I don't know if anyone else picked up on this, that I saw it was sort of a connection with Fincher was sort of the way that like, I mean, specifically like social network, it's sort of about how the very petty and very interpersonal things are the reasons for these huge life-altering things in our own lives. Like we have Facebook, in at least according to the social network, because a girl dumped Mark Zuckerberg. Like, yeah. that's literally what the social network says. Like, he did it to show up a girl. Right. And then this starts off with someone who, you know, talks... The quote you said about power is, like, what drives him... Power, definitely. Allison. It's power. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, I'm not going to do power. that. Power. Um, <laughs> but it's true. Like, it starts off with him basically being rejected by someone who Essentially being jilted. Yeah. yeah. And him basically saying, well, screw you. Yes. I'm going to show you. And, and he creates, essentially, his version of in his field, what it's like creating Facebook, which is like engineering the greatest political behind-the-scenes scandal of all time. So what did you think of his relationship with Robin uh, Wright, no no longer Penn? Uh, Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I thought they were great together. I think uh, she's really good on the show. She's amazing, She might be the best uh, performance on the show. But in terms of her and, and Spacey, Spacey to me is both like the best part and the worst part of the show. Does anyone else feel that way? There are, in some ways, Kevin Spacey could not be more perfectly cast in this show. And in other ways, I feel like he could not be more poorly cast in this show, right? And, like, I mean, you think of, like, the usual suspects and that ability he has to sort of, like, play... Oh, God, I didn't mean to do this, but to play his cards, his house of cards, close to his vest, you know what I mean? Like, right. he, can, he, can t- he can lie with a straight face as an actor better than almost anyone. And that's what this character's all about, is saying something in that honeysuckle accent but and trying to sound like he's very nice and sweet and we're going to do that and then but he's secretly thinking I'm going to destroy you I'm going to you know do everything like that that he's great at but then when he has to have like I didn't really notice it so much with Robin Wright but with with Kate Mara with this like disturbing erotic relationship that they have I did I found it disturbing <laughs> but erotic not so much but I don't 
don't know that it was necessarily meant to be. Yeah, we've, we've talked a little the bit quote, about this. Uh, he's, the Oscar Wilde quote he says was, everything is about sex about, except sex. Except sex, Sex yes. is about power. And right. I feel like that maybe power, came in. Power, Allison, power. I'm just not going to say that. I'm sorry. I refuse. Right. Try it maybe once? No. All right. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think that that does explain some of it, especially when it starts to go wrong, is that they're actually both of them are in it because of these weird power plays going on. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Let's hear. Audience, was Kevin Spacey weird in those scenes? <laughs> yes. You can clap. Kevin Spacey's not going to hurt you. Be honest. Come on. Probably not. All right. Yeah. I, I, what did you think of the, the fourth wall breaking? Because I could not stand it in the beginning. Oh, really? It really grew on me. Yeah. Well, actually, what's funny is I feel like the best parts of it are, have nothing to do with the dialogue. It's just Kevin Spacey going... <laughs> You know, he's like walking down a hallway and then he'll just turn and be like. <laughs> and you're like, and you're like, yeah, Kevin Spacey, you do that. Yeah, you're a bad man. Uh, that was my favorite part. Some of the dialogue is a little florid, is a little much. My other thing, and we don't want to get into spoilers. Uh, I don't want to spoil because I know some people haven't watched the whole thing. Some people haven't watched it at all. But there are things that ha- obviously there's a progression. There's a, there's a series of surprising events during the course of the show. And I felt like. And maybe you could defend it. I, I bet you will. Because <laughs> it's you. Uh, that when he does, that this character, Francis Underwood, Kevin Spacey, does some really shocking things towards the end of this series. And I felt like that's the time where I want to hear what's going on in this character's head. He's talked to me the whole time. And when he does these things, there's one particular thing I'm thinking of that's really shocking. And that's the stuff I want to hear him talk about to me. I want him to, to explain that to me. I want to hear his thoughts on this. And I don't know if he says anything like in the scenes around it at all. And I felt like if you're going to make this part of the show, you kind of can't pick and choose when and when not to bring us into his world. I mean, I can give you one defense, which is that you know he's playing us, the audience, the same way he's playing the characters. But I, I don't buy it. I, I, I dismiss my own argument, Allison. What do you yeah, think? No, I would agree. I, I think that that particular incident is... I really wanted to know why, because it didn't necessarily seem like something that had to happen. It seemed like something he chose to have happen. And I think that if you're going to have the audience be the only person that he's really honest with the whole time, right? The like, only people who see him as he, as he, like, what he actually thinks, then I think that you can't have something like that happen then and not say what's on his mind. And I do remember someone mentioning that in the British series, there's a moment where the character does something bad and the camera like backs away from him and he's like, oh, you know, you're in this with me now. Like you can't, you can't back oh, out now. And I'm like, awesome. that's what I wanted to that see. That would have been so good. This, you know, of, like if we are implicated, then when the worst thing happens that like we should have uh, been made to be implicated. Does that, do you remember that from the BBC show? He's nodding. Could have yes. said yes. Thank you. There we go. Okay, so yes, I love that. That yeah. sounds amazing. I know. Maybe in the second season. I think that's the other thing. We didn't mention this, but this got greenlit by Netflix for 26 episodes. So they knew going into this that not only did they have 13 episodes guaranteed, they had another season to come. And I think I maybe forgot all about that, that explains a little bit about How why underwhelming it the last the episode it is. Ends. Yeah, it does. It ends with a shot of a Blackberry, basically. And you're like, after all of that, we are like closing what? in on a shot of like someone missing a call. Phone. <laughs> Will he answer the call in time? Tune in next season on House of Gods. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I totally forgot. I knew that and I forgot it. And when we watched it at home, we were sitting there going, that's, that's it? That's the last? That's how you're going to end the show? I forgot that they knew you know, those sneaky devils. They knew they had in their back pocket 
some other some other episodes coming. Yeah. Uh, what else? I know we have. We're running out of time. Is yeah. there, we haven't I, really mentioned like half the cast. And maybe oh, no. that's that's one thing I did want to say. I liked how you know. On a show like a, a broadcast show, like contractually, they're obligated to figure out a way to put every single character in the show somehow. You know, so there's like the third or fourth supporting character, and they clearly have no idea what to do with them. And they're just like, you're, you're doing your laundry this week, and there's a problem at the laundromat. And go. And I liked in, in House of Cards where you wouldn't see a character for almost maybe an episode, episode and a half. And that you really... It felt more organic. It felt realistic in that way, and I like that. That a character might pop up on the first episode, and then we wouldn't see him for two or three episodes, and then like the uh, the, the lobbyist is a character that I definitely thought of, and I thought the way that they they sort of wove all the characters together, I thought was really smart. Yeah, I did too. I, I wanted. It sounds like we're saying that maybe the writing is one of the weak spots on yeah, this. Uh, weaker, it's yeah. Written by Bo Willimon, who's also the showrunner. Uh, I'm curious what you think of its portrayal of politics because it is not, say, a glowingly idealistic portrayal. Of well, politics. no, it's not. I guess. I guess we uh, we're all such cynical people at this point. It didn't really. Uh, in terms of the darkness, didn't bother me except maybe one or two things that happened, which are pretty shocking. But I mean. I thought it was – I think my problem was more with the pacing and the fact that it seemed sort of 10 episodes that were crammed into 13 episodes instead of the other way around and that I felt at times like they were just marking time. Does it make any impact for you that Bo Willimon worked on the, the Dean campaign? No. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just curious because okay. I feel like – He's, Did it for you? No, I feel like he pro- clearly had idealism sometime. And oh, he seems paradise to have a, lost. Li- a slightly more jaded view of politics now. Maybe, maybe. Well, that's uh, House of Cards. It is now streaming on Netflix that's in right. its entire first season. That's right. If you've got feedback to share about the show, send it to svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Stay tuned. When SVU Live returns, Allison and I make an ill-advised Oscar wager. You are not going to want to miss it. Stick with us. This episode of Film Spotting SVU is also sponsored by MoviePass, a subscription service which allows you to pay a monthly fee and see a movie per day at many major theaters. You can check in using an app on your smartphone and a membership card, and it works for any new release, though it doesn't yet cover 3D or IMAX. If you're going to the movies several times a month, you might want to check out MoviePass. Instead of paying per ticket, you pay that flat fee for the month, and that gets you entry to one film a day. Check out moviepass.com slash filmspotting. For more info and use the offer code FILMSPOTTING to get $10 off the first month of your subscription. They're in hiding at the Canadian ambassador's residence. Fortunately, we do not believe the Iranians are aware the six have escaped. So, what we like for this are bicycles. We've identified back roads from the Shemaran district. A couple of rat lines through the mountains to the crossing near Tabriz. Cars are off the table because of the roadblocks. We wait till the weather clears up, then deliver the six bikes, provide them with maps to the Turkish border. We have intelligence. They can ride bicycles, or we're prepared to send in somebody to teach them. Or you could just send in training wheels and meet them at the border with Gatorade. 
Welcome back to Film Spotting SVU Live at Videology with Allison Wilmore. I'm Matt Singer, and it's time for a hallowed podcast tradition, everybody. Our annual ill-advised Oscar wager. Now, every year when it's Academy Awards time, Allison and I each pick all the categories, and the winner gets nothing. The winner gets to keep their dignity and their health, while the loser faces shame, indignation, and possibly, just possibly, grave bodily harm. In years past, the loser had to drink, and this was me, an entire bowl of cheese dip. I did that. You were there. I was there. I did it. I really enjoyed being there. <laughs> I almost died. Yeah. Uh, another year, I think someone actually had to watch a movie by Uva Bowl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Dark this time. This year, Allison, we have come up. You actually, this was your idea. Yeah. Come up. And I apologize ahead of time. Tr- this is a truly, truly horrific penalty that not only will one of us face, all of you will face. Allison, tell them about it. Well, you know, after we had our musical interlude at the end of uh, the Top Gun podcast, I thought, do you know what? Maybe the loser this year has to sing the song of the winner's choice, and we will tack it on to the end of a podcast coming soon. And now, yeah. I, I would just like yeah. to say, I, as someone who is like a terrible singer, I apologize ahead of time for that. And also, Matt, you know... As the greatest the, singer... Yeah. <laughs> In the history of the universe. So I had to choose strategically. Here. So I picked really badly on purpose. I'm like, Lay Miz for best picture. Oh, yeah, that's going to win. Sure. Ben Zeitlin, best director. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no. So, but, but the thing is, I don't get to pick if I lose what I sing. You're going to pick. Exactly. So if people want to suggest uh, what song we should be forced to sing, they can send an email, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. The worse, the better. It's going to be pretty bad. Pretty bad. So. Uh, now, at this point, we could just go through our picks and explain who we picked for the Oscars, but that would be kind of boring, I think, especially since by the time people are listening to this at home, they will have already watched the Oscars and will know who have won. So instead, what we did was, uh, you guys here know this, but people listening don't realize, when you were all coming in, we gave everyone a ballot, and it includes the top six awards, Best Actor, Actress, Supporting Actor, Actress, and Director and Picture. We tallied up the votes, and now we will reveal the winners of the first ever Svooskers. The Svooskers! If, if these lovely people who came to Film Spotting SVU Live at Videology picked the winners of the Academy Awards, and I, I would argue they deserve to. Here's Absolutely. who would win. Let's start. I have, now, these are fresh out of the ballot box. I, there's been no gerrymandering or anything. Uh, so for Best Supporting Actress, the nominees were Amy Adams for The Master, Sally Field for Lincoln, Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables, Helen Hunt for The Sessions, and Jackie Weaver for Silver Linings Playbook. Do you have a prediction who you think – this is we, This is not who we thought might win at the Oscars. This is who we, the movie lovers of the world, want to win. Ooh, I would say maybe Amy Adams. Amy Adams. Who thinks Amy Adams won? <laughs> Allison, it yes. was a tie. Anything goes at the Sfuskers, and we have a tie. Best Supporting Actress, Amy Adams, The Master, and Anne Hathaway from Les Miserables. (laughs) But she dreamed a dream. He's shaking his head at me. All right, well, that was a tie. Allison, who would you, you, if you had a vote, who would you vote for here? 
would I vote for? Probably yeah. Amy Adams. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. All right. Well, then she won because we just our votes count most. There you go, guys. Congratulations. Don't need to watch the Oscars this weekend. All right. Yeah. All right. Next category: Best Supporting Actor: Alan Arkin for Argo, Robert De Niro for Silver Linings Playbook, Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master, Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln, and Christoph Waltz for Django Unchained. Allison, who, who do you think won? Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, maybe. Audience, what do you think? Do you think uh, is that who? Huh. It was Philip Seymour Hoffman for The Master. Good job, guys. We'll send... Well, he's not... Unfortunately, he's not here. I will accept his award on his behalf. I'm sure if he was here, he'd be very excited. Okay, Best Actress. We have the nominees Jessica Chastain for Zero Dark Thirty, Jennifer Lawrence from Silver Linings Playbook, Emmanuel Riva from Amor, Quivanjane Wallace from Beasts of the Southern Wild, and Naomi Watts from The Impossible. Allison? Uh, Jessica Chastain? Yeah. Yeah. If that one guy got like 10 votes, she definitely won. (laughs) And he must have because she did win. Jessica Chastain from Zero Dark Thirty wins the Spoosker. You think she's got a chance in hell tomorrow night, No, absolutely not. No. (laughs) Who's it going to be? Jennifer Lawrence? I actually, I could see Emmanuel Riva coming through. It's also her birthday on the Oscars, oh. and she's 80-something, and like, come on. Come on! Sentimental favorite. And she's also, you know, very good in that movie, so. <laughs> not like that's important. <laughs> it's really not. Okay. Let's move on to the best actor category. Very hotly contested. We have Bradley Cooper for Silver Linings Playbook, Daniel Day-Lewis from Lincoln, Hugh Jackman from Les Miserables, Joaquin Phoenix from The Master, and Denzel Washington from Flight. Allison, even Ooh. though you can probably see right here, I and can't, you're cheating. I actually can't. Oh, good. I'm not cheating. All right. Who, who do you think our audience of incredibly intelligent cinephiles picked to win the Spoosker? That's, this is a really tough category, but I, I'm going to go with my personal favorite, who is Joaquin Phoenix, and just go like Master all the way with this. Yeah. Audience, did Joaquin Phoenix win the Spoosker? He did not win the Spoosker. The winner, according to you wonderful people, Daniel Day-Lewis from Lincoln. He's all right. He's pretty good. (laughs) And he's still in character, apparently. I just heard that. Until he gets his next role, I think he just stays. He's still wearing the beard. There is no Daniel Day-Lewis. No. There there is only the role. There is only Lincoln. No. That's right. Okay, let's move on to Best Director. Best Director, we've got Michael Haneke for Amour, Ben Zeitlin from Beasts of the Southern Wild, Ang Lee from Life of Pi, Steven Spielberg from Lincoln, and David O. Russell for Silver Linings Playbook. Allison, who do you think the audience went with? This is really tough. Um, Not for me. I have the answer right here. All right. Well, let's hear it. Because I actually don't have a guess. This one, I'm really really up in the air. Audience, who do you think? I hear Hanukkah. Zeitlin. Zeitlin. Ooh. Well, it was actually pretty close, but uh, Zeitlin came in second place, which is not bad. Yeah. First place, though, Steven Spielberg for Lincoln. Mm. The audience loves Lincoln. Wow. You picked it. Why are you angry? <laughs> I didn't vote. I can't believe people are upset. You picked it. All right. All right. And now the big award. It all comes down to this. These are the nominees for Best Picture. Amour, Argo, Beasts of the Southern Wild, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. Allison, prediction. Zero Dark Thirty? Audience, is it Zero Dark Thirty? No. Or is it, is it a more? Or is it Django Unchained? <laughs> or is it Les Miserables? <laughs> Beast? Beast? A more? 
zero dark thirty is the winner of the Spoosker. Any surprises for you? There's the whole list. Take a look. What do you think? We had two two zero dark thirties. Yeah, I, I think no. I, I think you guys have excellent taste. <laughs> I, I don't know if it will line up with who actually wins. Yeah, let's I have see. Do feeling... we have any winners? Well, Daniel Day Lewis is the favorite, right? Uh, yeah. So we've we've probably got that one good. I, think, I mean, Argo is going and to Hath- win. Best and Picture, Hathaway right? is going to win. No. We're really bad at picking the Oscars. That's why we make really horrible punishments. Right. I couldn't just predict. so it feels more random than ever. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. stay tuned because uh, on a future episode we'll announce the winner and then. <laughs> They will sing something really, really bad. (laughs) And it's going to be fantastic. Well, thank you all for participating in the first annual Spooskers. It's really a wonderful event. Yeah, you deserve that. I I think you you guys did a fabulous job picking, too. I think you have fabulous taste. So stick around. Coming up next, where what are we doing, Allison? We're doing Behind the Eight Ball. Stay tuned. All right, next up is Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, you're up first. Are you ready? Absolutely. Here we go. All right, three new picks. All right, first up, audience, get ready. I'm going to need you all to audibly gasp in a second. Are you ready? Okay. Allison, I have never seen a movie by Andre Tarkovsky. I haven't seen Stalker. I haven't seen Andre Rublev. I haven't seen Solaris. I've seen I've seen Steven Soderbergh's Solaris. <gasps> Throw him out. Yes, and I certainly haven't seen The Sacrifice, which is new on Netflix and was Tarkovsky's last film. It's famous for its long takes, or so I've been told. I don't know. The film is about an aging writer whose birthday party is interrupted by the television announcement of World War III... And I'm sure it's a laugh riot. All right, maybe not a laugh riot. But Allison, maybe we should do like an all Tarkovsky listener's choice. That's that way a I'm crowd forced. pleaser, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be exciting. But it would help me clear up that blind spot. Anyway, that's The Sacrifice. It's available on Netflix. Next up, and I already, <laughs> I already mentioned this movie in a joke. Uh, I've never seen a movie by Andre Tarkovsky, but I have seen this next recommendation. Dirty Work, starring Norm MacDonald and Artie Lang. Yeah, all right, we got some fans of Dirty Work. Released in 1998, just before the collapse of the SNL movie boom, the film, directed by Bob Saget from Full House, follows a pair of buddies, played by Norm and Artie, who start their own revenge for hire business. If you enjoyed Norm's work on Saturday Night Live, I strongly encourage you to watch this one. Allison, I really do think it's actually a very underrated comedy from the 90s, but I haven't seen a movie by Andre Tarkovsky, so what do I know? My opinion might be worthless. And finally, my third and final recommendation is a movie I haven't seen. I'm basing it entirely on the description from Netflix alone. It's called The Man from Beyond. It's a silent film from 1922, and here is how it is described. Legendary escape artist Harry Houdini stars as a frozen man who's been preserved in ice for a century until scientists on an Arctic expedition dig him up and free him to reconnect with a lost love. It's John Carpenter's The Thing if John Carpenter's The Thing starred Harry Houdini. (laughs) Allison, I haven't even watched this movie yet, and I already got the poster for the movie tattooed on my back. That is how excited I am to see The Man From Beyond, which is available on Netflix. All right. Well, stick around afterwards to see if you can talk Matt into showing you that tattoo. It won't take much. Yeah, and um, next up, two expiring titles. I'm actually going to give three for the price of two this week. Now, first, we've got a pair of previous listeners' choice reviews from our show. First, we've got Drugstore Cowboy, which we reviewed on a special episode of Film Spotting, actually. That's the 1989 film directed by Gus Van Zandt. 
and it stars Matt Dillon and Kelly Lynch. And second, you've got Cutthroat Island, the infamous Rennie Harlan bomb. Woo, one person has seen that movie, which is weird because we reviewed it and talked about it and hopefully someone else watched it, but maybe not. It stars Gina Davis as Morgan Adams, the beautiful but deadly female pirate. We reviewed that one on SVU number 11, which was our episode devoted to female-driven action movies. Both of those films, Drugstore Cowboy and Cutthroat Island, are expiring on March 1st. And for my last expiring pick, Hey Girl, before Ryan Gosling became best known for silly internet memes. Well, first he was a child actor on the Mickey Mouse Club, but then he reinvented himself as a serious adult actor with a movie called Half Nelson. And that is expiring on Netflix on March 1st. If you've never seen it, Hey Girl, it's really, really good. It's very smart, even though I'm an idiot. It's very well acted. It's a, it's, a, it's a great movie. It's expiring on March 1st. All right, and one from your queue. Wow, this is an exciting one. Uh, you gave me number 50. These are real, by the way. We don't rig this. This is genuine. You gave me number 50, which, when you guys hear this movie, well, let's see if anyone's heard of it. It's called The Dark Backward. Awesome. One person has heard of it. Stars Judd Nelson, Bill Paxton, Wayne Newton, Lara Flynn Boyle, James Conn, and Rob Lowe. And here's the description from Netflix. I've never seen it. Someone told me I should put it on my queue, and that's what I did. Here's what the description. Aspiring stand-up comic Marty Malt can get a laugh only out of his fellow trash man Gus, who accompanies Marty's deadly routines on the accordion. But things change for the duo when, um, when Marty suddenly grows a third arm out of the center of his back. (laughs) Allison, really, let's be honest. What's funnier than a stand-up comedian with a third arm growing out of his back? Am I right? Yeah, I would see that guy in a second. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that's The Dark Backward, and it is available on Netflix. Allison, are you ready for your own countdown? I rambled on for quite a while You did, but it's okay. Yes, I am ready. All right, why don't we start with three new releases? All right. Uh, My first new release is Army of Shadows, which is now on Hulu. This is the 1969 French film directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. A really terrific film. It takes this kind of like great noir approach to resistance fighters who in the film don't get to do, they they don't get to do a lot of resisting. They mostly seem to be like trying to avoid getting caught. Uh, It did not get released in the U.S. until 2006, which is why a lot of people put it on their best of lists on 2006 because they are cheaters because let's be honest, a 1969 film is not a new release but that is army of shadows which is really worth watching it is on hulu um also new on netflix is side by side which is uh hosted by keanu reeves who also produced it and this is a film about the shift between <laughs> i love how you rush face like it's hosted by keanu reeves but don't let that stop you because it's actually a really good movie. yeah he's actually a pretty good interview he's actually good yeah, he's he a is. good interviewer like, who knew uh you know it's about the shift between film and digital and it's a real film nerd you know, piece of work, which is great. Uh, it, it features a lot of interviews with uh, directors, but also cinematographers and actors. And you've got uh, George Lucas, James Cameron, David Fincher, and everyone talking about you know to the different mediums and like the strengths and weaknesses of them, and uh, and just kind of how you know you're not really going to get much of a choice uh, going forward in the future. But it's a really interesting film, uh, and if you really just want to dig into kind of like. The nuts and bolts of filmmaking. It's really worth seeking out. That is side by side. It is on Netflix. And finally, this is one I have not seen, but I've heard very good things about. It is new on Netflix. It's called 9.79 Asterisk. And this is a doc that aired as part of ESPN's sports documentary series 30 by 30. It actually aired pretty recently. It's in their second round of 30 by 30 films. And, you know, there's been some really great films in that, even for people like me who are like, 
Sports. Uh, so uh, this is a film that premiered at Toronto. It's about the 100-meter final at the Seoul Games, um, Seoul Olympic Games. This is when Carl Lewis and Ben Johnson, two uh, sprinters who had a great rivalry, rivalry, competed against each other. And uh, Johnson won, but then was stripped of his medal because of uh, drug testing. And the film goes into exploring that and also about the fact that like six of the eight finalists in that race eventually were implicated for drug, te- like for, for performance enhancing drugs. So you know, maybe there's a conversation to be had about just what it means to compete these days in athletics. Um, so that is 9.79 asterisk. That's also on Netflix. All right, two expiring titles. All right, expiring March 1st. I included this because it's, uh, I think it's been at the top of my Netflix queue for like two years and I've never watched it. Um, it is the You're co- running out of time. Yeah, it is The Color of Pomegranates. This is a 1968 Soviet film written and directed by Sergei Parajanov about an Armenian poet. Um, Round yeah. of applause. Who thinks Alice yes. is going to watch this one before it expires? <laughs> That was laughter. That was not that applause. That was not applause, yeah. Okay. I think this is actually a film that I've seen, like, if you went to a really arty college party, someone might be projecting it against <laughs> the wall. Um, so I have unfortunately never gotten around to seeing more of it than that. Uh, and now time is running out. I'm also expiring on March 1st. This film, Crackle, is Layer Cake. This is Matthew Vaughn's 2004 film about a cocaine de- dealer on the verge of retirement, which, as we all know, is a terrible thing to be. Uh, it just dooms you. But uh, it stars Daniel Craig, pre-James Bond. And also, really interestingly, I haven't seen this for a while, uh, Tom Hardy and Ben Wishaw are in this film, and you know they've since kind of risen in prominence, and I'd really like to go back and see them uh, as they were in kind of smaller roles here. Uh, Sienna Miller as well. And it's just like a kind of fun British crime film. Like, it's very slick. And that is Layer Cake. It's expiring from Crackle. All right, and one random film from your queue, Allison. You gave me number 50, which is actually not a film. It's a TV show. It's The United States of Terra, which is the Showtime drama that was created by Diablo Cody and stars Tony Collette as a housewife and mother with multiple personalities. I've given, I've watched some episodes of this, but I've always wanted to kind of give it more of a try and watch you know, kind of later later episodes where I hear the show builds on this real premise more than like as a metaphor. But I have not yet gotten around to it. So that is why it is my cue, United States of Terra. Okay, we're running a little long. We've got to get to our movie. But very quickly, should we do our listeners' choice options? Yes, and This let's way people will hear them. All right, very quickly, you're going to do the first one. Okay. And what is it? The first one is Schizopolis. It is on Hulu Plus. This is, yes. The yes, you are allowed to applause. applaud if you're yes. excited. All right. A little Soderbergh for y'all. Yeah, this is director Steven Soderbergh's 1996 film in which he stars. It uh, costs $250,000, experimental comedy. Apparently wrote lines right before they went into shooting the scene. And I cannot even describe the plot. It is too difficult. But that is Schizopolis. I have not seen it. Have you? Mm, I haven't seen it either. So this would be, you know, filling in our Soderbergh. Uh, that is your number one pick. That's right. And our next pick... I just talked about it. It's the dark backward. I read that description. I'm like, Allison, we have to watch this movie. And that's what we're going to do. That's going to be our, if you pick it, of course. That's our second option. If you don't vote for it, I'm going to be so mad, guys. So mad. Are you going to vote for it? Good. I have one vote in my pocket right now. And I'm going to campaign for it after the show. I'm going to be whispering in all your ears. The dark backward. The dark backward. 
What's our third option? Our third option Allison. is a more recent film. It is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. It is on iTunes now. Uh, this is directed by Stephen Chbosky. Just won a Spirit Award for Best First Feature, despite the fact that Stephen Chbosky directed a 1995 film called The Four Corners of Nowhere that has apparently been wiped from public memory. It never happened. Yes. Uh, based on a book that he wrote and is. It stars Logan Lerman, Ezra Miller, Emma Watson. It's a coming-of-age tale. It's one I've, I've seen and thought was pretty great. So, and you have not seen it yet. I haven't seen it. I've, been, I've heard so many great things that this would be my excuse to watch it if I don't get to watch that dark backward. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, March 4th at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Tuesday, March 12th. You can send your feedback to svu at filmspottingsvu.com. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the episode. This probably sounds familiar to people. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review that you pick. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice, except for this week when we didn't give you a choice, and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. I'm Matt Singer, and stay tuned because we've still got lots more show coming up next. Compliance. <laughs> All right. We'll be back with, hopefully, with director Craig Zobel in a little bit. Stay tuned. This is Officer Daniels with the police department. I have a woman here saying one of your employees took money out of her purse. You have a young lady who works at the register, about 19 years old, blonde. Becky, come with me. I swear I didn't take anything. I don't know what's going on here. I'm just trying to do my job. Calm down for me, okay? You don't realize what kind of trouble you're in. We need to find the money, but I'll need your help till I can get down there. We really have two choices here. He's saying he'll have to take you to jail. What we could do is have you strip search her right now. I could strip search you here. No. No. Um, okay, guys, so we're having trouble tracking down Craig, so instead we're going with uh, our, our backup, who is Pat Healy, who is the caller, the officer in this case. Yes, oh, there he is. Uh, well, we just watched Compliance, and the thought of talking to you... We are at, this is, we're at Videology in Brooklyn. We're at a uh, we're at a bar and uh, venue. Oh, there it is. There's the poster right behind you. Uh, and the the idea of talking to you on a, any sort of phone device right now is incredibly disturbing to me. I thought it, I thought it would be nicer if you could see my face. Uh, at least the threat is less. Have my snazzy cardigan here. Yes. Uh, maybe can you work? You've worked with Craig before. Mm-hmm. Can you talk uh, about? What, what it was like, what it was like um, the first time he approached you about this project. What was your reaction when he described the project? Well, um, I guess.
guess to get personal, uh, I was uh, I was about to get divorced. <laughs> I was uh, I, I, my I was in like a really bad place where I literally like had the the knockdown drag off fight that I I didn't know at the time was going to be the end of my marriage, but ended up being the end of my marriage. Oh, can you see me? Yeah, yeah, we can still see you. Okay, Just flickering out for a second. So. Um, so Craig happened to call me right at that moment, and I thought I, I was kind of um, horrified by the script and by the possibility of, of doing the part. I would do anything for him, you know, obviously, and I knew that the script was great, and I wanted to do it, but I think I knew that I could challenge the horrible way that I was feeling because of the personal situation I was in into, into what... Uh, you know, basically a character that I couldn't really relate to is a lot of um, self-loathing and anger and hatred and everything. It's not something that I, that I relate to or sort of punishing other people with that. Um, but I was feeling it in that moment. And um, it also meant that I could leave L.A. and go to New York for a little while and get away from my situation. So um, I said yes. Uh, but uh, And then, you know, once I sort of committed to doing it, I, I never had any... Um, hesitations about it, but but I um, it was it was difficult. Allison, you have a question. Oh yeah, uh, hey Pat, it's Allison Wilmore. I'm off screen, but I wanted to ask you, hey, how much of a backstory did you come up with for the character? We get a little glimpse of his life and his home life. Like, how much of a, a kind of sense of that did you come up with, and you or Craig come up with um, in playing the part? Um, a lot of it was uh, written in um, because uh, there's of course a case, a real case that this is based on but the, the, the perpetrator in that case was uh, acquitted so I couldn't I purposely like didn't study or research that person because I didn't I didn't want to really know anything about them um, uh, even if accidentally I did something you know that was similar um I would be um, in trouble. Uh, so um, the first thing that Craig wanted to do, I mean, we, we, he sort of wanted me to do this because, um, not just because of my prodigious acting talents, but because, because we had worked together before on another uh, sort of situation that was somewhat experimental. He knew that we had a shorthand, we were good friends. He wouldn't have to you know, hold my hand and he could sort of direct the other actors in the other room upstairs. So the first thing that he did was he gave me, he gifted me an entire season of the best of cops on <laughs> It was like 30 hours of cops. Because it was just about getting the, he had the language written really well, but it was just about getting like the rhythm of that down and also um, the peculiarities of how they did what they do, which is... Um, you know, when to be nice, when to say sir and ma'am, and when to, you know, throw the hammer down, and also, like, how to do those things in, um, uh, you know, coordination with, with, with each other, how to, how to lay the hammer down and then come in and be nice so they hear the, the comforter when somebody's in shock. As far as a backstory for the character, um, it was all written in the script. Um, it's sort of like a two strands of the method, I guess. There's like the Strasbourg method, which is like, a, you know, you you are the character and you 
you feel the emotions of the character. Uh, not that you don't feel the emotions the other way, but you that you you sort of like you know the Daniel Day Lewis uh, of it is kind of that that strand strand of it. And then there's sort of the Stella Adler technique, which is really you know she always talked about um, script analysis and using your imagination. So. I just trust that Craig is a good writer. Everything is in the script, so it's it's in the script that he he lives in this house and he ma- he's making this sandwich and he has this daughter and, and um, the things, all the things that are on the desk, um, you know, the the police manuals, the the electronic cigarette, all that stuff is sort of written in there. So it's sort of using my imagination based on those things, um, you know, wherever wherever those little clues take me. And then just sort of getting in there on the day and doing it, which is, you know, we're actually on the phone with each other the whole time. I'm downstairs and they're upstairs. And the camera's always on me and them at the same time. So, um, uh, you know, you're just doing it. And, and during the takes, if something wasn't working right or, or like it didn't feel right for, for Anne or for, for Dreama or, or Bill or anybody upstairs, you know, we would switch it up a little. So Craig would tell me, um, be mean this time or be, be nice this time. Or he would say to Anne, don't do what he says this time. In which case, I would have to sort of improvise my way into convincing her to do whatever horrible thing it was I was asking her to do at that time. One other question I can't ask you about you that I'm, I'm always interested in is the way that your character, the fact that your character is on screen so much. You know, you start off, we actually see you right in the beginning, and then we hear you for a long time, but then we start to see you... Uh, you know, talking into the phone, making the sandwich, doing all these sorts of things. I'm wondering how you felt about the way the character was shown on camera, and maybe you talked with Craig about how he decided to do that as well. Yeah, we had um, conversations early on. It was written in the script pretty much the way that you see it in the film, Um, but he wanted to leave it open so that if he decided to not ever show me at all, he could. Or if he wanted to show me the whole time, he could. So... We had a set that was built, you know, the, the restaurant, the manager's office. You know, the only location is, like, the externals, the exteriors, and the the front of the restaurant, which is a fast food restaurant at night when it's closed. And then everything else are these sets that uh, Matt Munn, the production designer, built, which are on a soundstage in Brooklyn. So the manager's office is upstairs, and all of my, um, you know, my, my room is downstairs. And so... Um, Everything is filmed, so I'm always, everything that I did, all the calls are live, and the camera's always on me, so I have to approach it, everything the same way. Um, In those rare instances when the phone would break down, I'd have to go upstairs and and do my lines off camera, which not only made me sick to my stomach, like having to do it to people's face, but um, um, it's just not as... Um, what's the word, immediate or real that way, you know, um, to have sort of someone reading the lines off camera. You can actually act with uh, someone when you're on the phone with them, whether you can see them or not. So it is just like having an acting partner in a scene and looking them in the eye. It really isn't uh, any different. Um, But when I saw the film, it was very much like the way that it had been written in the script. I think he realized that that worked best. Um, some people disagree with that uh, choice. Uh, I, I I leave that to them. I, I, I think it comes at kind of a perfect time um, because it's uh, 
it's when other characters in the film realize that something is is wrong. Um, up to that point, it's entirely you know subjective with Anne and Andrema. So, um, um, so you don't see me until Kevin sort of comes in and says, you know, hey, this doesn't seem right. Um, it's kind of letting the audience be, uh, you know, a a, uh, a participant as well as an observer. So I, I like that very much the way that it's done. Yes, That's a great yes. answer. Uh, maybe we can open this up to some questions from the audience. Does anyone have questions? While and you guys are thinking. I'm going to call. I'm actually just going to call Craig on this and put him on speakerphone because um, we're having technical difficulties. Okay. Um, and uh, if you guys want to ask me the question, I'll repeat it into the mic so that everyone can hear. Uh, yeah. As an actor, uh, what was it like playing a director? And did you have any particular directors in mind? <laughs> um, the question is: As an actor, what was it like playing a director? And did you have any particular directors in mind? Oh, jeez. You know, that's a great question. I never thought about playing a director before, that I was playing a director in the film. I guess I am. Um, and I guess that, uh, you know, some people have said that the the uh, character of Officer Daniels is, is a stand-in for a director. If the film uh, if the film was about voyeurism and, and it's equating that with filmmaking in some way, um, it's really strange because in Great World of Sound, I, I very much drew from um, uh, things about Craig uh, in playing that part. Who I, who I think can he, he should be able to hear you right now, Pat. Craig, are you with us? <laughs> I can. Uh, oh, Pat. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. You, you can keep going, Pat. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, it's okay. Uh, so, I just want to say real quick, I'm, I'm so sorry that I can't be with you technologically in a better way than this, you guys. Um, I appreciate you coming out to see the film, and, and, and if, uh, if I hadn't uh, realized that I was going to be at the, uh, the Spirit of Words with Anne, I, 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 it would have been different. But, but thank you guys for, for watching it. And, up with me being on <laughs> it's, I'm impressed we actually pulled it off. So thank you for uh, sticking with us and not uh, telling me to, to screw off. But uh, maybe, we, maybe we should get some questions for Craig since we've got him on the phone now. Any questions from the audience? Anybody? Yes. Yeah, I'm just wondering about the rehearsal process and how involved they were uh, before they started shooting, like, were did they did he uh, did Pat establish a relationship with the other actors uh, prior to, to shooting, or did he try to keep them separated to uh, add to the mystery? So the question was whether there was a rehearsal process, whether you had time to to rehearse beforehand, and whether Pat got to interact with these other actors, or was he kept sort of separate from everybody? Sure. Uh, to to just mention, I'm sure uh, Pat can weigh in on this too, but. Uh, to answer the, the Pat portion of the question, now my initial idea that I, I toyed with for, for maybe like four hours was that I was going to actually have Pat not eat with all of us and like that they would never meet him except for as the voice over the phone during the thing. Um, but then after like contemplating that, I was like, how, how mean and horrible. <laughs> um, but I didn't necessarily... My instinct was that I didn't want there to be a, a relationship with, with Pat and them. Uh, that was my, my instinct as what should be the right choice, but I just didn't want to, like, 
uh, really put Pat through that, honestly, and and, uh, and and it may actually end up being the, the, the absolute opposite, I think, of what the right idea would have been. Um, and, and the fact that everybody could get to meet Pat and know who he was and, and, and have a relationship with him, I, I think was, was valuable. I, I'll let Pat answer that, too. But as far as the rehearsal for everybody else, we didn't have a whole lot. Um, and I found that, like, kind of the stuff that we did do, we did have, uh, I think we, Pat, we did a few, like, Skype rehearsals where you, you called in or, or so, um, early yeah. on. But, uh, essentially, like, a lot of it was kind of, like, we, we did, we would do a little bit of rehearsal, and, and the general idea was that we sort of knew that it was gonna have to be hard, and that, 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 that so it, it wasn't necessarily a, a a, a, a lack of wanting to do more rehearsal, but it was, it, I mean, that was a time constraint of the, the production, just the cost of the production. But also it was something that I think everybody was a little like, let's not break this by doing it a hundred times before we do it. Um, Any... We, we're going to lose the room. We have to leave the room in, in, in a couple of minutes because there's another event here. So I want to see if we can get one or two more questions from anybody who might have some questions from the audience before we have to let you go. Yes? So I've been pretty fascinated with the Milgram experiment that has been actually pretty replicated that when you have a figure of authority, people pretty consistently do whatever they're told to do. Did you keep that experiment experiment in mind because there are definitely allusions to that throughout the movie and what feeling did, do you want the audience left with? Like, do you think the manager is at fault or do you want the audience actually seeing themselves in the manager's role as something they might be able to do? So the, so the question was, were you guys thinking about the Milgram experiment? Was that something you were, you know, referencing or thinking about? And also, what, what how did you want people, I guess, to feel? Was that the... How, how sort of you hope what people take away from it? What? Yeah, um, I, I think as far as the Mugram experience part of the question, like, absolutely, I was, I was actually reading the Mugram experience when I read about the, the actual cases of these phone calls. So it, it was like a, a literal genesis of the idea. Um, I, I had been reading about the Mugram experience before, the, before I came, came upon the, the, the real call. Um, it was very much like kind of where my interest was or fascination was. As far as whether or not I wanted the audience to uh, judge uh, Anne's character or, or relate to her, um, honestly, I mean, a, a little, a, I, I think whether that's the first time I did something wrong, um, and I, I don't think that that, uh, I would like to think that that's a, that's an important thing to acknowledge and not not gloss over. Um, but I also think it's a human thing that she did too. I think that that um, you know that that in a way that if you can see how these things happen or see this sort of identification of like why a person would get in her position and not sort of I don't think that she's the devil, or you know, or or, or it's a little bit of the you know the the right to health case and good intention situation. But I mean, it, in a sense, like I I don't think that that woman is a bad bad person or didn't want to want to, to be right. I think that she was incredibly you know insecure and had 
the, the right chemistry of, of back life history that put her in a place where in a situation that, that happened to her. And, and I have a lot of sympathy in, uh, for that. Um, but at the same time, she's still pissing wrong. So, I, I mean, I, I suppose, like, both. Do we have time for one more question, or we gotta we have to wrap things up? One more question. Last question from the audience, guys. Anyone? What do you want us to do right now? <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a very existential question. I'd like I'd like an answer from from both Craig and Pat. What would you like us to do right now? <laughs> uh, uh, that's wonderful. I think that you should all. Uh, you should buy, uh, go to the closest liquor store and buy uh, a large handle of, of whiskey and drink it together. Okay. And Pat? Pat, any, any, any last, what should we do? Did Craig say something? Did Craig say something about having a drink? Is that what he said? Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah, I would say uh, having a drink have a couple um, continue to talk about the movie if you if you want to I, I, I assure you it'll make you feel better if you get it outside of yourself than whatever you're thinking or feeling in that's my opinion well I apologize for the technical uh, glitches but guys thank you so much for joining us great. you guys did a great job and uh, again thank you so much Thanks for bearing with us. And, and thank, thank you, thank you, uh, guys, for, for coming yeah. out and watching the film. I, I really do appreciate it. And, uh, 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 you know, it means a lot to me that it's still screening. And, and, uh, um, so thank you very much. And, Pat, thanks for pitching in, too, being our backup. We thank really you. appreciate it. We, uh, we were really appreciate everyone coming out. This was a lot of fun for me. I hope you had fun, too. And I hope we can do it again, and I hope you'll come back. So thanks, guys. <laughs>